I was chatting, uh, texting, really, uh, with some pastor friends uh, yesterday, and one of them said, uh, we were having a whole different conversation than what I'm about to say, but but he said, you know, I find that I'm often in trouble when I try to take from God what belongs to God, His kingdom, His power, and His glory. Uh, when I try to take the things that are thine and make them mine, I know I'm in trouble. And it's part of why I love Sundays. Because there's a chance week in and week out to be reminded about what's His, and what's ours, and how we become like Him, but in what ways that are uniquely His, uniquely Him that aren't mine to take. I'm glad you're here this morning. I would encourage you uh, to get your Bible out and open it with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to talk today about, I, I really want to answer this question. What do healthy churches do that toxic churches don't? You've experienced a toxic church before, I'm betting. And if Harvest is your very first church, then I hope you haven't. Many of us have experienced a church that's got some toxicity to it. There might be uh, that gossip is used to promote power. It might be that there's a sort of a celebrity culture going on. That, that there might be that constant conflict is the norm or that there are power games that are being played all the time. It may be that politics rules the day. That, of course, can mean at some level like American politics. But at some other level, that can easily mean internal politics. Just squabbles over who's in charge and who's who gets to say... You know, sometimes in toxic churches, what's said privately is different than what's said publicly. The conflict is dealt with by talking about people, not talking to people. That there's an us versus them mentality. Really, it becomes the culture of the church where, where, where we're separated into camps and groups. Sometimes in toxic churches, the pastor's always right as opposed to the Holy Spirit and His Word. And I will go easily far enough to say, I'm not always right. Ask my family. Sometimes in toxic churches, people get blackballed. Churches use people and then spit them out. Toxic churches often have hypocrisy where one thing is sort of allowable privately, but then publicly the right face is put on. All kinds of things describe toxic churches. And, and I find that far more than not, toxic churches have toxic leadership. Where there are, again, much of this is about maintaining power. That the, There's pride and narcissism and leading through fear. That, that there's a sense of constantly trying to spin the story, demonize the critic, dis, critics, discredit those who disagree. We, we gaslight the accusers. We make the victim the bad guy. We make the bad guy the good guys. We silence truth-telling. I've been a part of churches like that. I'm thankful that that's not a description, in my mind at least, I hope it isn't in yours, of Harvest Community Church. 
And I want to spend a couple of weeks because the text we're in is, is just dense enough and enough going on there in this healthy versus toxic dynamic that I want to make sure we don't miss anything. So I, I want to spend a couple of weeks talking about the difference between healthy churches and toxic churches. And I believe with all my heart that, that Harvest Community Church strives to be a healthy church. But momentum often works the wrong direction. That if you just start coasting, you move from healthy to not so healthy to unhealthy to toxic. We have to be intentional about becoming and staying as healthy as we possibly can. And there's a lot here I want to focus on. So again, we're going to make this a a two-week gig. I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of this today because it's too important not to get right. And then next week I want to pick up three, four, five, ten, fifteen, three hundred others. Is that is that fair? You know, there's this text that we're going to read today, and there's this view, uh, verse in the middle of Colossians 1 that's beautiful. Again, I, I think I referenced this a few weeks ago, but when we began the series, Julie wrote me and said, hey, is there like a particular verse of Colossians that we should highlight or something like a memory verse or, or just one or two verses even that we, and we had so much trouble identifying what are, what are sort of the most important key verses of the book of Colossians. But the one I'm going to highlight for you now easily could be one of those. It's Colossians chapter one, verse 27. And I'm going to come back and give you context for it, but I, but I want to make sure you hear it and see it many times today. Colossians one twenty-seven. Again, if you have your Bibles, read it with me. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, man, bring them. If you don't have one, We'll give you one. They're on the back table. They're over there. They're blue. Look for a blue book. You'll find, take one of our Bibles, consider it yours. It'll be on the screen as well. This verse says to them, and we'll have to figure out who them is, but God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. He's talking about the gospel, but he calls it a mystery. And the word mystery in the Bible is sort of interesting. The word mystery uh, could, in, in a lot of cases, I think, mean something more like secret or a secret that's been disclosed. Because the word mystery, literally, it, it, the Greek word would be mysterion. Uh, our word mystery comes from it. But it means something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And so, so you know, it, we're talking about something that had been a secret but is no longer To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. It's talking about the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is this mystery? What is this secret that is once hidden but now revealed? It is, as it says here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is that talking about? I think... Again, this is a beautiful, beautiful statement, but often misunderstood statement. One of the most misunderstood, perhaps, of the New Testament, and I think it's one of the keys to Christianity. Here's where it gets misunderstood. We read it and we go, okay, the the beautiful mystery is the gospel, and the gospel is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Because I read you, and when I see you, I read 
me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so all that Christ is, remember, we talked for a few weeks ago about the amazement of who Christ is, right? That he is preeminent, he is supreme, he is firstborn over all creation, he's firstborn from among the dead. That There's so much about who Christ is that is powerful. And last week we talked about salvation, right? That there's so much, all these beautiful pictures of grace that exist in this text. And that all of that at work in me, that this is the whole hope of glory that someday all be changed that all that christ is his righteousness and his goodness and his love and his grace and even his holiness that all of that in glory is all i will be not his divinity right i'm not going to become divine we spend most of our lives down here trying to pretend we are but i'm not going to become divine but i'm going to become like Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, that's not at all what it means, sorry. Maybe it's a tiny, tiny bit of what it means. But let me show you why we misinterpret this. To figure this out, we have to begin to do good detective work. And again, that sounds great. And actually, I would suggest to you that the whole of the New Testament does teach what I just told you. So it's not, it, it's not wrong. It's just not exactly what this verse says. And to do good detective work, when we study our Bibles, we have to start asking good questions. Questions like when it says them, who is them? When it says Gentiles, who are they? And when it says you, who is you? And this is where... English isn't always our friend, if I'm quite honest with you. See, in proper English, we say, if I'm referring to you or you, I say, you. And if I'm referring to you and you and you and you and you, I say, you. And if I'm referring to you and 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 all of you, I still say, right. Actually, down down south. If it's, if it's all of you, it would be all y'all, right? There's, there's you, and then there's y'all, and then there's all y'all, all right? And so, so I realized that I was, I was told and told and told that's, that's not very good English. But let's be specific. Southern grammar, if we could call it that. And you know, can I be straight? I didn't learn grammar till I took a language besides English. Right? I think it's why we take foreign language in high school and beyond. Because I didn't learn English grammar. Frankly, I didn't turn, learn English grammar until I took Greek. But that's a whole different ballgame. The question here is which you is this? Is this you singular? Is this y'all like, like some of you? Or is this all y'all? It's not hard to find out. You go back to the original language it was written in, you look the grammar part up, and you easily find out this is you, plural. So the whole idea that Christ in me individually, the hope of glory is a misidentification, a misinterpretation of what the Bible is trying to get at here. And I would suggest to you that 
some of the problems that exist in the American church today exist because we're very singular focused. And we're not a communal culture. Is that fair? Right? There are cultures of the world that are very communal. America is not one of them. Right? We think about ourselves first and we tend to view everything through a lens that is colored towards the individual. But again, the question should be, who is you? And so far we've gotten you is you plural. So let's, let's zoom out a little bit because again, doing good detective work, good Bible study, In a sense, I'm trying to model for you how to understand your Bible. People say a lot, like, man, Brian, I read my Bible and I don't get out of it what you get out of it. And I I will just frankly admit, I mean, I I spend hours on this, so, so I'm not trying to say look at me. But I will say, if we just do good detective work, if we just ask good questions, we can get a lot more understanding from our Bibles. So let's zoom out a little bit. I'm going to take us back to the middle, really, of verse 23. I'll just start beginning of verse 23. It says, if or since you continue in your faith, established and firm. This is where we left off last week, talking about reconciliation. We were once alienated from God. We were enemies in our minds. Now we're reconciled with Christ. When or since you continue in your faith, established and firm. And when you do not move on from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel, the good news that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So every creature under heaven is to whom the gospel is now proclaimed and for. Every creature. It's part of the hint. Now I rejoice, verse 24, in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. That's a super confusing statement, and I'm going to punt that until next week. Just because to make it make sense is going to take me at least another week to try to figure it out. I have some thoughts. It just isn't the direction I want to go with it today. I will come back to that. I will clarify it best I can. He's talking about the gospel. He's saying that he is suffering in relation to the gospel. That Verse 25 says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you. Guess what? The you's here? Yeah, all plural. To present to us. Remember, the beginning of the letter, brothers and sisters in Christ. To the church at Colossae. You plural. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So who's the you? It's the Lord's people as represented in the church. To them, the Lord's people as that, that make up the church, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles 
the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, plural, the hope of glory. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, which is telling us that inside the church there was people who were not Gentile, not, not gentle, but Gentile. There were people who were Jewish, if we want to understand the dynamics that we're talking about here. And there were people who were Gentiles. Now, to understand that dynamic, we've got to begin to think a little bit. See, the Jewish people had a tendency to look at things very colored by a lens that was focused only on them. Have I mentioned lately that sometimes when I preach, I should, or the Bible should, not Brian, but the Bible should make you uncomfortable. Today should do that. If it doesn't stretch you some, I'm either not doing my job right, or we're not listening well. Jew-Gentile. The Jewish people looked at it like there's there's us. And then there's the rest of them. God's favored. And all y'all that aren't God's favored. And Jesus came along and said, "Mm -mm 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 -mm." God loves everyone. And in the early church, the early church was birthed. You might remember the book of Acts, right? Acts 2, Acts 1. The people came from all over the world for Pentecost. And they were celebrating. And the Holy Spirit came. There were people from all over the world. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. For a better lack of a better way of saying it. And they they were there from all kinds of backgrounds. Which... Which would mean that there were Jew and, right? And the Holy Spirit came upon people who were both Jew and, yeah. You know what's really interesting? You know what the word, the word Gentile is here? The Greek word is ethnos. The word ethnicity comes from this word. Jew, Gentile doesn't sound like an ethnic thing to you. And the Bible has all kinds of ethnic kind of language that we don't see as we read it. To them, God has chosen to make known among the nations the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Probably the most famous place where the word ethnos also shows up but gets translated differently is in the Great Commission, where it says, you know, this should sound familiar. I preached on it like two weeks ago. As you're going or go into all the world and make disciples of all ethnos. Make disciples of all nations. All Gentiles, all the people that are not you. Because among the twelve disciples, they were, they were Jewish. And if you read the book of Acts rightly, what you find is that the gospel spread from Jewish folks, the good news that Jesus loves everyone, spread from not just Jewish folks, but beyond Jewish folks to many, many nations. And the church was reluctant to go. 
and persecution came and they went and the gospel spread but that led to conflict because now you had people from different ethnos receiving the gospel and the question became in a sense how jewish do you have to be do the gentiles have to become jews which for the men at least was sort of painful And so there's all of this discussion in the book of Acts about, well, how Jewish do we need to be? Or, so let me just keep going. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in all y'all, the hope of glory. And He is the one we proclaim. Notice the focus here is not so much on us, but is on Jesus, the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching Everyone, everyone is not limited to those of us that are already in the faith, to everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. On the days I feel like I have no strength. Like this is the verse that keeps me going. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. His energy, not mine. Keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. The chapter verse distinctions don't always help here. I want you to know how hard I am contending, so it's all the same context, for you and for those at Laodicea. And you might remember, when we started Colossians, there's there's three towns like right in the region where they are. Laodicea is not far away. And so there is this sense that he's saying, in the next town over. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for all of those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. And my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and mind and united. I added mind, that's my bad. They may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and all the treasures of knowledge. I'm just going to pause there. I mean, it, it, it goes on and the whole argument in Colossians is one long drive in the same direction. But I want you to see here that he's saying this doesn't just apply to all y'all in Colossae, but also to all y'all in... Sorry, I feel like I'm going a little overboard on that. To the you plural that makes up the church of Laodicea and the church down the road and the church down the road from there. And what you have to sort of understand is that, this is interesting. What what country did the earthquake happen in that we were talking about earlier? Turkey. And where is Colossae? Turkey. Turkey. The earthquake's in southeast Turkey. Colossae's in southwest Turkey, along with cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, Colossae, and others. So this is southwest Turkey. And, and south of Turkey, 
It's the Mediterranean Sea, and south of that is Africa, and east, northeast of Africa is, is the Holy Land and Israel and, and all that we sort of think about. And if you go north of Turkey, you get the Black Sea. And if you go north of the Black Sea, I should have brought a map today with my handy-dandy old-school wooden pointer. But, but if you go north of the Black Sea, you get what today we call Ukraine, but back then they called Scythia. Why does any of this matter? Let me see. I've given you the context of what it's saying, that that the mystery is Christ in all of you, the hope of glory. That we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone. But in the broad context, sometimes for context, we have to see what it says right here in this text. And then sometimes we have to see, what does this book we're reading say? Not just the whole book, but the book of Colossians, or the letter to Colossae in this sense. And to identify who the all y'all were, I would take you a couple of places. The very first verse, second verse, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So that, that sort of goes without saying. But chapter 3, verse 11. Here... Colossae, church, all y'all. There is no Gentile or Jew. Now here, when he says Gentile, he uses the word Greek, which is different than the word ethnos. It's, it's uh, uh, hele, uh, uh, like, like Hellenistic. Um, here there is no Gentile or Jew. This is that, that distinction between those of us that that were Jewish in background, which I am not, and those of us that were Greek in background, which I also am not. You might note, by the way, that it's very good that the gospel's for everyone because you and I are here and most of us are probably not by ethnicity, most of us at least, neither Greek nor Jew. Does this this make sense? So the Greeks are kind of funny because the Greeks also had this sense that there was them and there was everyone else. And for the Greeks, they would say that there, there, there were those of us, the, 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 the we, were Greek. And there was a little snootiness about it. And by now, we're really talking about people in the Roman world but had Greek background. So they would say, "Mm, yeah, there's those of us that are civilized, Greeks, speak Greek. And then there's all them. And they would call the all them barbarians. So here the verse says, here there is no Gentile or Jew. And I would suggest to you that when the Jews would say there were those of us who were Jewish and then there was the nations, there was the ethnos, there was the everybody else, there was a little bit of superiority built into that. And then when you find the Greek people, you find the same thing. That the Greeks would say, there's us who speak a good language, us who know more than others, us who are so sophisticated, and then there's everyone else, and they're all barbarians. There's some, big word, some ethnocentrism going on, where there's our ethnic, 
group. And then there's everybody else. And those of us in are in. And those of you who are out are out because you're barbarians. And the word barbarian actually comes from, from the, 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 it, it's an onomatopoeia. It, it, it's, I know, I'm, yeah, look, at, look at me trying to sound smart. What the heck is that? Onomatopoeia, right, is when you use sounds that make a word, right? So here it would be barbar. It, it, barbar would, to the Greek speaking people, sound like gibberish, would be our way of saying it. To them it was barbar. It was the confused language of other languages. So he says, Paul does, that in the church, when we're in Christ, and to be specific, back up, I don't think I have this in your notes, maybe I do, but verse 10, when you've put on the new self, chapter 3, verse 10, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. So we're talking about Christians here who are in Christ, and when we're in Christ, we're being made new in the image of our creator. And the image of our creator is the image of the invisible God. Not that we're being made divine, but we're being made like Jesus. Here in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, no Greek or Jew. Here, he says, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised. If Gentile Jew is about sort of these ethnic divisions that would exist, then then circumcised, uncircumcised would be their religious backgrounds, right? But it goes a little deeper because the word circumcised is, is the Jewish, the usual word that means circumcised. And the one uncircumcised was a very Jewish word and it's written in Greek because all of this is mostly written in Greek, at least in the New Testament. But the word uncircumcised it means foreskin. Because this is how they looked at things. There's those of us, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, just ask your parents. Please. Circumcised or uncircumcised. The Jews would say there's us and then there's just the, and they'd use this label to refer to everybody else. You're like, Brian, this is starting to sound like this isn't very nice. Like there were divisions in the church because people struggled to be to be people of different ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and that sometimes they would use labels in the way they refer to each other, and these labels were not always very Jesus-y. That is precisely, exactly what I'm saying. The world is not that different today than it was back then. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised. He says, no barbarian. They said, no, no barbars. No gibberish people. No Scythians. Remember, Turkey, Black Sea, Scythians. Scythians would be where modern day Ukrainians are today. But if barbar was a word to refer to the uncivilized, then for them, the word Scythian was even worse. So <laughs> to the Greeks, there, there were the Greeks, the, the good ones. There were the barbars. And then <laughs> you could be worse than a barbar. You'd be worse than a barbarian. You could be Scythian. He says here, in the church, among all y'all, <laughs> there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. 
Those words mean specifically what they mean. I don't really have to translate them for you. But think how countercultural this is to say, no slave, no free. Brothers and sisters in Christ. No barbarian, no Scythian. Brothers and sisters in Christ. No Gentile or Jew. Brothers or sisters in Christ. No circumcised or uncircumcised. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And he even goes on to say, back in chapter 1, I just want you to get the argument here. My goal, verse 2, chapter 1, my goal is that they may be encouraged, the people in Laodicea, that they may be encouraged in heart, that they may be united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. He is saying that if there's a diverse group of people in a church, that if we're really going to be as a diverse people, encouraged in heart together, united in love for one another, that will not have a full, rich, complete understanding of Christ in you until we have a full, complete understanding of love for one another. That if we are not encouraged in heart and united in love with a church that is as diverse as the nations of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, we'll never have the full riches of complete understanding. We'll never understand the mystery that is Christ in you, plural, until we take Jew and Gentile, slave and free, barbarian and Scythian, and we become united in love together. To quote someone else, Paul showed us here that the gospel eradicates racism and ethnocentrism and classism. That he longed for God's people to see themselves as God's new humanity defined by Israel's Messiah, not their skin colors, not their cultures, not their wealth, not their, not their ethnic and cultural differences. He says those things are, are, are not the thing that identifies who they are, that they are embraced. And what is obliterated are the barriers that divide us. No favored ethnicity, no favored class, no favored gender in God's church. We are equal in Christ, and therefore we are equally beloved by Christ. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. No national ethnic distinctions. No religious distinctions. No cultural distinctions. No economic or social distinctions. And I made a gender reference there. If you go over to the book of Galatians, there's a very similar verse that basically says no male, female. To them, God has chosen to make known among everyone else the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in all of you, the hope of glory. And if I read Revelation right, I find that there are people there bending their knee to Jesus who are from every kind of background you can imagine. That the gospel is for everyone. I got a lot to cover. I should get going. 
You know, one of the reasons I love to go verse by verse by verse through books of the Bible, we do that about, we always have an anchored text, right? We're always studying in context, that kind of thing. Sometimes we're topically kind of chasing things. We do that 40, 50% of the time. And sometimes we're just in books of the Bible going verse by verse by verse. One of the reasons I love to do that, and we do that 50, 60% of the time, is because it anchors us in what God says without trying to take a moment in culture and say, I have to speak to that. But just to take a moment in the Word of God and let the Word of God speak to us. Right? So I'm not preaching this message because, because the news has us thinking about race. Although frankly, we're never far from that. Because of what we see in our world. And in sense, we are. Because while I was writing it this week, right, uh, for the third, fourth time in weeks, months, right, crazy people, there's a lot more words I could use, but they wouldn't be appropriate for church, are throwing out anti-Semitic flyers in South Eugene, saying to folks who are Jewish that we hate you. In fact... I had a Jewish person point out to me yesterday, which I did not know, but I looked up and this is true, that the neo-Nazis of the American whatever declared yesterday to be the national day of hate. There's no place for that. When Jesus is in your life, there's never a place for that when Jesus is in your life. So here's the one thing I'm trying to convince us of. Let's fill in some blanks and I'm going to move fairly quick. The one thing, toxic churches only preach that the gospel is for everyone. Healthy churches actually live it. Healthy churches actually put it into practice. Healthy churches live that the gospel is for everyone. Toxic churches only preach that the gospel is for everyone. I've been involved in toxic churches before. You've been involved in toxic churches before. Have you ever been involved in a church where they say the gospel is for everyone? Everybody stands up and cheers. The gospel is for the nations. We should take the gospel to the nations. They stand up and cheer. Missionary comes, shares about how they take the gospel to the nations and stand up and cheer. Someone who looks like the nations or the poor or the unfavored walks through the doors of the church and the people turn their backs. That's toxic. Toxic. Now, I'm just going to say straight up, I'm thankful that that's, we've got our issues. We're not a perfect church, but that is not who we are here at Harvest Community Church. But that's a common experience for far more people than you and I know across the American church. And to some degree, churches around the world. But I do think in the American church, we have a particular problem with this. Healthy churches know and share and experience grace for all people, regardless of skin color, regardless of sex, regardless of socioeconomic status. Might I add, regardless of how they choose to vote? 
So let me give you five keys for understanding the argument that the Bible is making here. Five keys to understanding what the Bible is saying. Here they are. Number one, the gospel breaks down man-made walls and man-made barriers. And that's very man-centric. So just to be safe and make sure we're all on the same page, very woman-made walls and woman-made barriers, very human-made walls and human-made barriers. I want to be clear. The gospel breaks down all the walls, all the distinctions, all the things we put up. And our world is very good. It's, it's the most basic premise of sociology that as human beings, we like to group with other people who look, act, and think just like us. And we're naturally, there's a magnetism where, where we're naturally inclined towards people who look like me, sound like me, talk like me, think like me. And this forms the roots of what becomes eventually the hate divisions that happen among these groups. And Jesus came along and said, I love everyone. And just as an example, he took Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector and said, follow me. And they were both Jewish, but one was shunned. And the other wanted to shun the other. One hated the other, and Jesus said, follow me. And he kept saying over and over and over, love one another. This is what I'm trying to tell you. If you're my friends, if you love one another, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I am 100% convinced that the world would listen if we, the church, really learned to love one another. But we've lost credibility because we keep these man-made walls and man-made barriers and we let hurts that are real that happen along the way create not only divisions but hate and apathy and all kinds of other things. Just to follow the argument further, number two, the old identities are not our new identity. Our new identity is Christ. Right? What did it say? Chapter 3, verse 11. <laughs> no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, no slave, nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is my new identity. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. I don't believe he's saying that, that, that a person's race or ethnicity is wiped away. Or that a person's status as a Jew or a Gentile is wiped away. I, I don't believe that he is saying that the color of your skin is now also somehow transformed so that the color of your skin is now all the same. I'll come back to why on that in a second. But the old identities are not our new identity. Number three, the gospel shatters us versus them thinking. We go into our groups, we go into our holy huddles, and we, get into, we, we, we love each other and we protect each other and we're great and everybody else isn't. And all of that us versus them, there's no place for that in a healthy church. The gospel shatters us versus them thinking because love and grace is for everyone. Number four, that means that only Jesus is supreme. That he is, Colossians 1.15 and all that text that followed, only he is preeminent. Only he is to have the supremacy. 
which means to use some ugly words from our culture that white supremacy and black supremacy and Asian supremacy or Hispanic supremacy or Native American supremacy or any of the other ethnic divisions that exist, male supremacy, female supremacy, that all of that is built wrongly because only Jesus is supreme. And this is what it means to be a part of the... (laughs) the communal church, the, the, the church of Jesus, that He is supreme and none of us are. And, and why, I'm pretty sure you know this, but Jesus was not a white European. Despite most of the paintings I've seen all of my life. And every culture paints Jesus in their image. But in Christ we are remade, remade in the image of God. Number five, the argument that's flowing here is that, and I just want to at least note this part, racism is not just a black and white thing. And I mean that literally talking about the colors of our skin. I don't mean that in the, in the other sense in which we say black and white. It's not just a black and white thing. Right? When the pandemic happened, racism against minorities in America who were Asian skyrocketed. I can't take responsibility for what happens in the world. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not who Jesus is. I don't know if you know this, but some of the earliest church fathers, the the part of church history that all us Protestants sort of ignore, because all of us Protestants, we go back to Martin Luther and we're like, yeah, you know, post that thing on the door, like Halloween, like 95 theses, that whole deal. We're like, yeah, that's worth celebrating. And we forget that there's a whole host of history before that because we think all those are just all the Catholics. But there was more than just the Catholic Church before that. There was the Eastern Church, the Western Church. To be specific, the Greek Church, Greek Orthodox, what we would refer to today, and the Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal, sort of the whole church. And in the earliest of days of the church, it was not thought of sort of denominationally at all, like we do today. And some of the earliest church fathers, Tertullian, Athanasius, even Augustine, they're all from, get this, northern Africa. What do you think the odds are that the color of their skin looks exactly like mine? These are men who gave us thoughts about how to frame our understanding in some of the earliest creeds that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Some of the earliest creeds that define how Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human. But you never hear that. And I don't know that they all had black skin. I think it's very well established that one of them did and the others perhaps in question. But they certainly didn't have white skin. I know what time it is. Can you just give me a few more minutes? This is important we get it right. I want to give us... Eight practical suggestions to foster love and unity when the world around us fosters hate and apathy and division. Because I'm not, I, I don't have control over what the world does out there, but the world's very good at hate and apathy and division. But I do have some responsibility for how we are communally here at Harvest Community Church. And I want to make sure that we represent the love of Jesus as outlined here. Is that fair?
So I'm going to give you eight suggestions. And frankly, I didn't put any blanks because one, I knew I was going to have to run through this really quick. And two, I don't want you to mistake anything here. So let's talk about how we foster love and unity. Number one, do a serious study of the Bible about race and grace. And I'm going to say a word that gets me in trouble, but justice. These are biblical words. Ethnos, biblical word. Justice, biblical word. If these things get uncomfortable, don't argue. I mean, you're welcome to have a conversation with me any day. As long as we can schedule, right? But I, I'm, I'm good with conversations. Let's have them. But if you're going to come and tell me that I've missed the boat somehow, let's do it biblically. What is the Bible saying? When George Floyd was killed in 2020, many of my fellow pastors, myself included, felt the need to speak into the American experience as it relates to race. And to say that there is no place for racism in the church of Jesus Christ. And I know other pastors who had people in their church come to them and say, yeah, that's not what I come to church for. Like, I'm out. Because that's just not a discussion that is fair game. That's not an argument with a pastor. That's an argument with a Bible. Do what love would lead you to do. Do what love would lead you to do. What does it look like to love? That's all I'm asking. What does it look like to live out what Jesus says? Study, we'll get there. Colossians 3 after verse 11 tells us to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to be patient with one another, to above all those things put on love for one another. What does it look like to love? When you love, you sacrifice, you empathize, you feel their pain. The hurt that hurts them hurts to you. There's not an us versus them. You love them the way you love yourself, to put it in biblical terms. What do we do in the church? We build loving relationships across ethnic and socioeconomic differences. And I would even add across political differences. Build loving relationships that transcend all of those divisions that exist among us. Embrace people as people rather than as groups. There's not us and them. There's just people we love. We embrace people as people. When I get to know someone, when, when I hear someone say those and they throw a group in like, like well, you know, those, uh, just bear with me, those Republicans, those Democrats, Those Christians, those, most of the time when we put a group together and we say those and we group them, what we're frankly admitting is that we don't know any of them. And part of what helps in the church is when we embrace people as people and we build relationships and we learn, number five, to have loving but uncomfortable conversations. Because a loving conversation says... What was your experience? And then we put on our best listening ears. And we listen to understand, not just to be understood. And sometimes those conversations make your hair stand up. And sometimes those conversations make you think, no, this isn't right. 
sometimes those comfortable, those those uncomfortable conversations even are difficult because you begin to say things like, how do you see it? What do you think? And what's your way of looking at this? And it begins to challenge things you've thought for a long time. In the church, it means that we value and celebrate our differences while we stay unified in the gospel. What unifies us is exactly what he was talking about here today. The love of Jesus is revealed in the gospel. It doesn't mean that we ignore our differences. It means that we learn from them, we value them, and we embrace them. I have a friend uh, back from my high school days who was mostly, maybe not completely, I'm not sure, but, but he's one of the better artists I knew in that time. He's colorblind. Colorblind. And it's very common today to say, hey, I just think we should be colorblind. No, we shouldn't. No, we shouldn't. We're all different. Let's value that. Loving everyone isn't a colorless world. It's a fully orbed world. We're stronger when we celebrate all of the colors that God paints with. Two more. Practice honest and humble self-evaluation about hurts and motives and our humble and our honest conversations that sometimes are loving and difficult conversations. We have to be honest. We have to be humble. We need to look at our own hurts and our own motives. And I think there's real value in learning to practice collective lament and collective mourning with people we love. Lament's not a word we use very often, but it's all throughout these pages, particularly this middle part where there's, um, you know, the book of Psalms, where we say, we're wrong, or we're sad, or we don't feel very good. And, and I hear a lot of people today say, oh, the Bible's not about feelings. Doctrine's not about feelings. No, have you read your Bible? What I do know is when there are people in my life who have different color skin than me and I love them and they're hurting, then I'm mourning with those who mourn. I'm grieving with those who grieve. I'm loving people I love. This is, this is toxic churches only preach that the gospel is for everyone. Healthy churches actually live it. Like, keep doing it, Harvest. Keep living it. Keep loving everyone. Everyone. There's no place for hate. This seems like a no-brainer to me. If Jesus really loves all people then we're supposed to love all people, which means our church is supposed to be for all people because they're people Jesus loves. Are we good? Can I pray for us? We always end our services with two prayers. Two prayers. The first is a prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, man...
The gospel is good news because the gospel says that in spite of all the ways you are different from God, primarily your sin, that Jesus loves you enough to enter into our world and die on your behalf, to bear the shame that you and I bear on his shoulders that he was buried in a borrowed grave, that he was raised to life on the third day, that he's defeated sin and death, and that he wants to love you, to be in relationship with you and with all of us. And if you need Jesus today, you can receive him by just praying just like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Forgive me for not loving you. And forgive me for all the other things I do wrong and fall short. I put my faith in you. I believe that you died for my sins on that cross. I believe that you are alive today. Since you're alive, take over my life and make me yours, Jesus. Live in me and live out your love and help me to love everyone the way you love everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If that's you and for the very first time you become a Christian today, you followed Jesus today, you've, you've given your life to Jesus, man, I'd love to celebrate that. But I can't celebrate it if I don't know about it. So you got to let someone know. Someone around you, let me know. You can tell me on a communication card online, a digital communication card. You can, you can find me after service. You can even email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. I know a lot of you became Christ followers some time ago. Maybe you'd, as this message applies to you, you'd pray this prayer of application with me. Dear Jesus, help us to live the gospel, not just preach it. Jesus, we ask that we, your people, would be characterized by your love and your grace for everyone. And when anyone walks through those doors or enters our community, we commit that we will love them like you love them. Help us to embrace unity, but not insist on uniformity. As a church, we commit to embrace our differences we ask you to help us learn from each other what it's like, how hard it is to be human. May we in your love and your grace be a witness to our community. And when our community has hate, and apathy and division. May we be a voice for love
and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I love you guys. Thank you for bearing with me. I stole five minutes from you today. I realize that. I just think it's too important not to get it right. Keep it up. Keep being that church that loves everyone. You with me? All right. We're going to sing. Can we still sing? Do we have oh, time? yeah. We totally got time. Oh, good. What, are we going to put God in a box on a schedule? <laughs> no. No, let's no. sing. But I have a, Brian, I have a question. So I'm not from the South. I've never been to the South. Is it like posing if I say all y'all? <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit. Would all y'all stand with me? <laughs> <laughs>